I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reimagining Liberty, a podcast exploring the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. A lot of people seem pretty down on freedom right now. Some take it so far as to blame liberty and political liberalism for not just our economic woes, but also for allowing our culture to drift away from some kind of socially conservative, right-leaning, often religious imagined ideal. These post-liberals have found intellectual purchase, writing talked about books, headlining conferences, and catalyzing a new reactionary movement. But do their arguments work, or are they in fact self-defeating? My guest today is Michael Tolhurst, Senior Director of Research at the Institute for Humane Studies. Michael has graduate degrees in philosophy and political science, and today's conversation features a bit from both. We talk about the problems of post-liberalism and why so many are ready to throw away liberty to force their peculiar cultural preferences upon the rest of us. What does it mean to be a post-liberal? I, I think that's a good question. I, I think, you know, if we sort of just look at the term, it means, I think, someone who sees themselves as somehow being past liberalism, uh, that whatever that they have come up with in terms of their views uh, has somehow answered questions that liberalism cannot, or somehow uh, has uh, given up on some of the key premises of liberalism. That said, uh, I think it's kind of a murky term. Uh, it's not clear that it always means strictly anti-liberal, though I think a lot of people who describe themselves as post-liberals have anti-liberal views. And so I think it really is just kind of a catch-all term for people who, for whatever reason, see their views as somehow standing in contrast to liberalism and somehow coming past it or surpassing it. Is it different then than just, I mean, you said it's not necessarily anti-liberalism, but is it just not liberalism? Because there's obviously lots of political theories that are non-liberal, that have been around and, and that predate liberalism, that were in competition with liberalism. The 20th century was a conflict, you know, violent conflicts between anti-liberal views. Is it – is the post-liberalism we're seeing today just a return to communism, fascism, theocracy, whatever these things happen to be? Or is there something like a – I guess a, a liberal DNA in it? So when I use the term post-liberal, I try to use it largely as a descriptive term to try to capture all these people who are sort of coming up with uh, illiberal or anti-liberal or, you know, these kind of surpassing liberal types of views, uh, but without trying to sort of ascribe too much to them as to whether they see themselves as a particular school, uh, partly because I think some of these figures are in flux, or you can sort of see the, their views sort of evolving um, as they are in conversation. So I think someone like uh, Dreher, I think, is interesting, where, you know, in various of his blog posts, he seems to sort of have sympathy for, but then shy away from elements of national conservatism. He seems to have sympathy for, but then shy away from uh, elements of, of integralism. So uh, I don't know if it's clear yet that they're sort of solidified in kind of the amber of history to sort of ascribe to them a really sort of strict school or delineation. Uh, so that's why I think I sort of use the larger descriptive term. But you could say, I think, uh, fairly that are they participating in certain, a certain sort of shared conversation space as a variety of historical cr critics of liberalism have? And I think that's absolutely true. The thing that always strikes me, and I'm curious what you your reaction to this, about a lot of the 
so-called post-liberals is how much of it seems to almost be an aesthetic movement versus a like a philosophical or an ideological movement and and so i think this is most prominent among the catholic integralists or is it integralists i never know how to pronounce that I, I, I think i know a scholar who's coming out with a great book recently on the topic so we'll, we'll have to ask him how to pronounce we'll, that we'll ask yes uh, but with them it is they seem to be drawn to the the iconography of catholicism and the the architecture of old catholic towns and cities and and the pageantry of it and this rejection of modernity as a as an aesthetic in in a return to traditionalism and so it, it almost seems like they just look around the world and find it aesthetically unpleasing and want to enforce and and I mean that's there's that specifically Catholic version of it, but that does seem to be like a broader thing is we have people are doing stuff that I find to be displeasing in in this like reactive way, less so than you know liberalism worked out is this philosophy of institutions and rights and experimentation and knowledge acquisition and all of that but so much of post-liberalism is just like i don't like the modern world and i imagine that if we could scale back liberalism we could undo the modern world right i think the aesthetic element and sort of political thought tends to be pretty underrated and i say that as someone who's like done has a background both in analytic philosophy and political theory. And I and, and none of my sort of training do we talk a lot about the aesthetics. But when you look at even like historical movements uh, like fascism, right? And of course, this is a little bit easier for us looking back. You see the cultural elements, but you're sort of struck by the aesthetics uh, of them. You know, very striking style, uh, design elements that are instantly recognizable such that it's sort of – a meaningful thing to say that something has a fascist aesthetic or, you know, like sort of the Soviet realism uh, of the thirties that has a particular aesthetic. Uh, and on the one hand, you could sort of take your sort of philosopher hat, your political theorist hat and say like, well, aesthetics is this, just this kind of froth. It sort of sits separate from like the underlying ideology. But I think it certainly seems intertwined with how people sort of experience and understand their ideology and what they think there is uh, that's good about the world. So I do think like the aesthetic element is a big part of this. I think the challenge then is how do you sort of take that seriously? Because there's a way you could sort of say like, oh, it's just an aesthetic element and say like, oh, then it's like not really serious ideas. It's like, well, these people, like folks seem fairly motivated by this. People seem very sort of distraught that, that, that the modern world appears ugly to them. You know, I think of something like, uh, I, I don't know if I would call Prince Charles like a, a, uh, post-liberal, but, you know, he has a very famous speech in the 1980s, sort of like decrying modern architecture. And like a lot of, I think, uh, conservatives who have a preference for sort of classical architecture do find something sort of displeasing um, in the aesthetics. And that seems to matter. People seem to care about that. Uh, how does that connect into uh, their critique of liberalism? It may just be that, look, liberalism is very permissive of different styles, or it may be a critique of, well, liberalism just sort of has an equilibrium where you go towards kind of a least common denominator aesthetics, which just they tend to find very displeasing. And so if you want to have like a, a more sort of refined vision, you have to somehow constrain society in various ways. That might be the thought. I want to be careful because there may be post-liberals out there listening to me speak. And even though I strongly disagree with them, I want to try to be as fair as possible and kind of characterizing the really baggy universe of views out there. 
it seems that there are parallels here to a lot of contemporary Marxist critiques of, say, of capitalism too, of it's it's this consumerism, mass production, um, forcing people into these meaningless pop culture trends to keep them engaged as buyers and not thinking about you know the the status of the working class or their own oppression or alienation and so on um and it is i it is striking how often a lot of national conservatism and this post liberalism seems to have marxist parallels but the particular critique of liberalism that they raise and this is i'm drawing on an article that you published a while back in the the online journal liberal currents which i recommend all of our listeners check out uh, that they offer two kind of conflicting ways in your mind of framing liberal neutrality because liberal neutrality is the crux of a lot of these complaints, namely that what liberalism says is we should the the role of the state is to protect our rights and let us get about the business of living our lives. And, and that one of the benefits of liberalism is that it allows pluralism. It allows us to go about living our lives in different ways while getting along with each other and mutually cooperating on important stuff. Um, and you offer two kind of conflicting interpretations of this that I think are interesting, which is one that they object to neutrality because it means that they, the post-liberals, can't use the state to enforce whatever their preferences are because that's been carved off. Which seems, I mean, that one's that one's very clear. But the one I like, I'm really curious about is that the claim instead that the neutrality, liberal neutrality, is is essentially fake. That it's a lie. That liberalism is not as neutral as it sets out to be. Right. I think. Uh, I think you sort of see versions of this in different sort of debate spaces, right? So you might say something like, uh, what is it to have something like uh, a, a public education in, in a liberal society and, and sort of bracketing out, you know, your thoughts about what should be done or not done by the state. But like, let's say you have, like liberal states do often have public ed education, you have that. Um, there's going to be certain decisions about uh, what that curriculum is going to be. And so if you say, like, look, uh, the curriculum is going to maybe be more science-focused, maybe it's going to be more secular, it's not going to be denominational in focus, uh, maybe we will not open the day uh, with a prayer. Uh, I think to someone who sort of holds views that aren't sort of secular or or, or, or non-denominational and has, you know, a very strong denominational identity, that probably doesn't feel necessarily neutral, or at least not neutral uh, with regard to some of the things that they care about, right? Particularly if you understand, say, a religious position and a secular position to themselves be distinct positions, and rather than assuming secularism just is neutrality. And I think that probably comes into more tension as more people today probably self-consciously identify as being themselves either secular or, or, or non-religion. That, that idea of it being neutral probably uh, doesn't sound... Uh, as as true anymore, I think, to someone who might be religious. Maybe that works if everybody in your society is religious, but all variety, like very varying different varieties of religion or denominations. And so the secular space is the, the neutral space between the religions. But it doesn't feel neutral if it's between a religious perspective and a non-religious perspective. So I think that's an example where um, they would say, 
liberalism proposes itself to be a certain sort of neutrality, uh, but it in fact uh, sets the scale uh, against a certain sort of neutrality. And I think that's actually sort of an interesting challenge in some ways. I don't think uh, – let's just say I, I, can, I can understand why they would feel that way in this particular instance. It smacks in some ways of critiques of, say, media bias, right? Like that – so a lot of a lot of people think the media is biased. And but a lot of people think about it in the wrong way, uh, and and so they they think like what media bias means is that the New York Times, the Washington Post are lying to you, they're they're publishing fake news and so on, and that's not you know that's not how media bias actually works. Like they reputable publications put a lot of effort into getting the facts right. But the way that media bias works, and so they see themselves then as we are just presenting the facts in this like neutral way. But the media bias, the way it works, is in what they decide to, what facts they decide to report, what stories they decide to pay attention to, which ones they ignore, where they have their emphasis, and so on. And that seems very similar to what you're describing, at least in this case of like public education, is it's not necessarily that in a liberal society, the public schools are saying, your religion, your particular religion is wrong. They're just not talking about it. They're downplaying it in favor of other things. And so there's a lack of neutrality there. Although that obviously as in a pluralistic society becomes a big problem to say, okay, well then, I mean, we can't teach every religion. Right, right. So there's there's challenges as to like what the alternatives are. And this is a little bit, I think, of like sort of what I explore in the piece. Uh is, is this idea is, uh, you know, well, it's not clear, for example, uh, that the, the Catholic school is necessarily neutral between the other religions in a way that they would perceive it as neutral. But that – it almost seems like the answer to that isn't then post-liberalism in the, well, then let's pick a particular view and enforce it, but rather – I mean – rather libertarianism in a sense like the answer so the answer to the public school question is get rid of the public schools and give is like is basically more liberalism in the sense of a baseline set of structures that enables people to pursue their own ends and so that's vouchers or education tax credits private schools and so on where the parents can choose and then the people who want to send their kids to a secular school can the people who want to send them to a religious school can so why aren't I guess if if the liberal neutrality critique holds why aren't post liberals libertarians right so I, I do think it is the case that some folks who might have issues with the neutrality question of public schools may be pushed into a libertarian position and say like hey like this is why we need school choice this is why we need more pluralism let a thousand flowers bloom um I suspect what might motivate someone to be more post-liberal or illiberal rather than that kind of libertarian position might be a a suspicion, perhaps not always like fully articulated, that such a regime or way of, you know, sort of setting out society may not actually be stable, right? That in fact, there may be a suspicion that such a regime of pluralism might in fact actually devolve into uh, conflict. And so maybe what is sort of hiding below the surface is this idea that you probably might want some sort of center to hold, 
otherwise all these sort of uh you know different kind of communities or views can't simply sort of float free uh peacefully in a pluralistic liberal society that may be there i don't know if i know of anybody who has explicitly stated it but if you believe that to be true that might be why you would be suspicious of uh that particular approach uh you know to a more pluralistic uh a setup that does certainly seem to be implicit in a lot of critiques of liberalism and a lot of critiques of the current state of quote unquote west uh, that you see many people making arguments about we're, we're losing our western values and our traditions and these are what made us great compared to the rest of the world and as we drift away from those traditional ways of being and institutions we we break down social ties and the family and virtue etc 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 and that this then often manifests in kind of a reactionary we need to return to traditional social hierarchies. I mean, this was liberalism began as a rejection in, in opposition to conservatism, and the conservative arguments in Europe were often class based. There, we need to maintain the aristocracy; it's what maintains order. The lower classes aren't really capable of governing themselves and are are better off being controlled by the aristocracy. And the liberals were pushing back on that, and it seems like we see. I mean, in the U.S., we don't see an aristocracy-based argument, but we often see a, like, we need traditional gender roles, traditional families, male head of households. Uh, this turns into sometimes has, it like, a white nationalist angle to it of whites are the embodiment of the Western tradition and traditional values and immigrant and ethnic groups are pushing back on it. Like, that does seem to be a pretty big part of a lot of this. I think that's something that I've I've found very very strange. Um, I, I don't see myself as being particularly old or, or particularly wizened and sort of seeing several cycles of politics, um, but it is interesting because I would say if you had asked me like ten years ago, I would have said like conservatism in the U.S. is a type of you know right of center shaded liberalism you know if you if you think of someone who's like looking to uh, the american founders and like the the sort of the the sort of genius of the american founding and maybe they value things like decentralization greater liberty i see that all kind of within the liberal lane um what you're sort of talking about uh is really kind of an older style of european uh conservatism and not in the kind of the burkean vein but someone like uh, joseph demestra who is you know, explicitly sort of arguing kind of in defense of of, of monarchy and, and hierarchy, which is, I think, kind of unusual, uh, at least in those kinds of terms, um, on the on the American scene. So I think this is a very strange. It, it feels recent. It may be something where someone who has studied this longer will say, like, no, this has always been kind of a subcurrent in American uh, American politics, American pol- political thought, but this kind of turn towards sort of explicitly sort of like hierarchical and not just sort of tradition in terms of like the American tradition, uh, you know, enshrined in the constitution, but sort of tradition as in a, a particular uh, faith tradition in the way that like a lot of European conservatives uh, argue, it feels very strange to the American context and feels very alien, which has this paradoxical thing, whereas that's not actually like the American tradition, really. <laughs> So it, it is this kind of weird thing. It's like if it's to be authentically a conservative traditionalism, surely the tradition that you should be adopting should be, you know, the tradition of the people or the place. But to sort of try to impose, you know, Hungarian 
architecture or, or something on America, you know, it just seems sort of strangely alien, uh, given our, our story as, you know, people who've come from a variety of many different places and many different faith backgrounds. I don't think it's entirely alien, though. I mean, they, the the white-black hierarchy that existed, particularly during slavery and then in the early civil rights movement, is a version of this. You know, the, the southern landed gentry with their plantations and the the black slave class, and there were a lot of arguments that mirrored the aristocracy and lower classes of of Europe. Of they, the slaves need this structure that we're imposing, and so on and so forth. Um, and so I think it showed up then. It showed up during the civil rights movement and the protests and separate but equal and so on. Um, and I think to some extent we just need to distinguish. And I don't know that you can, but like conceptually, I want to distinguish conservatism as a movement that did for quite a while have these liberal elements from just the right, which historically has has had far less of that, and particularly the right as like a a populist and non-elite movement had much more of the the class consciousness and social status angle. That's a big part of this. Um, but it causes – I mean it does cause a problem for arguing for liberalism because if that's – as liberals, the way that we typically argue for liberalism is from the – there's like a moral side which is rights are important. You should respect them and and also people being able to – identify like build their own identity self-express and so on is awesome like that's half of it and then the other half is oh and also if you do this we get great stuff like it's it's a tremendous engine of wealth which then has all of these positive you know both for the people who like it's great that you can earn wealth but also your wealth creates positive externalities and it you know raises living standards like and it creates it's more peaceful so on and so forth like that's that's the argument but if if the objection to it is to basically accept all of that but say it leads to a world that I'm not comfortable with for whatever reason, then that's a harder nut to crack as far as arguing versus say arguing like – you can argue with a socialist who says, I think that you know workers are getting screwed and you can say, well, I think actually like greater market forces can help the workers accomplish the things you're trying to. Like that's a conversation you could have. But the like, I just want everyone to have classical architecture and follow this particular faith and I don't care about the rest of it is like it's harder to even know where to start. Right, right. And I, I, I suspect and, and it's a little bit hard not arguing from within the position. Uh, I would suspect the critique would also be something that uh, – what 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 is most lacking is some sort of deeper meaning, right? That is somehow uh, embedded and exemplified throughout society. So I, I think you know, uh, I, I don't know if liberals use the term beauty a lot, but these sort of you know traditionalists will often use the, the kind of the value loaded term beauty a lot. Um, it's it's a little tricky because if you're sort of not sort of within that perspective, it's hard to sort of like sort of sympathetically sort of put yourself into it and kind of see what the big thing is, uh, you know. And so it does seem like okay, like is is it really just about the architecture, 
you know, is that is that really kind of <laughs> what it boils down to? Um, and I guess this is where sort of like liberalism is probably a position. And, and I'd actually be curious as to your thoughts on this. Uh, but I would suspect liberalism is probably going to, as a position, suggest that you're probably not going to find that deeper meaning in your politics, that that's probably not the sort of appropriate place to to look for your deeper meaning. And this may be a fundamental sort of divide, I think, potentially with, with the liberals and the post-liberals, who sort of maybe see politics, if not a place for deeper meaning, certainly a place that can contribute or detract from uh, the quest for a deeper meaning by how it shapes society. And I think the liberalists would, would probably just say, like, look, like, you know, you can find meaning, you will be free to find meaning, you should find meaning, um, but you're probably not going to find that um, in kind of your sort of political theory. I mean, does that seem like a fair characterization? Or Yes, I think that's that's absolutely correct. And I have, I have made this argument a lot in the past that one of the problems with a robust politics in the sense of a, a sphere of politics that determines a large extent of our lives or impacts a lot of our lives is that it draws it draws meaning into it and it draws our attention into it and that it's a it's a corrupt way to be looking for meaning and belonging because politics is always zero sum it's always if i get my way you don't get yours whereas liberal tolerance is is not zero sum like if i get my way you can also get yours and so to some extent we given that there's never going to be uniform belief in both the sources of and kind of the contours of meaning there's always going to be some conflict if meaning comes through politics you are getting your meaning at the expense of others and their ability to do so and so i think it is actually it's not just that there are from a liberal perspective, better ways to find meaning in your life, but that I think it's actually and it, it is actually immoral to seek meaning in the political sphere, given given what the political sphere represents. Um, and it it also, and we, we're seeing this right now with a lot of the Trump is populism, is often you can you can find meaning like in religion. But if if that if that's off the table for people, they often will turn to like nationalism, invest meaning in the nation, and then nationalism, as we well know, creates extraordinary problems right. when people are like heavily invested in identity through the nation state, whether that's wars or genocides or just discrimination against people who come from other countries or other cultures and so on. Like nationalism is incredibly corrosive. And dangerous, but it does seem to be this. There is this weird notion that a lot of people have of like we should find our meaning through the nation state and our politics. I mean, this is that the Trumpist nationalists do this, but so too, like David Brooks is kind of constantly in columns calling for, you know, we need we need like renewed civic participation and things you know it's i think nationalism i sort of feel like it gets discussed on a spectrum where people sort of think like we need 
like, like, you know, and I would say I see myself as liberal and I think social connectedness is good. It's good to be connected to people in your life. Um, but there's like, if you sort of consider that as kind of a continuum that you can kind of slide up and down, maybe somebody might say it's like, well, we need like maximal social connectedness because that's like even better. And like, what does that look like? Well, that means everybody is sort of like connected to each other uh, maximally at the level of the nation as part of some sort of like deep mystic bond of of togetherness or something right um and so i think that's where you sort of maybe see someone like you said like a brooks who might say like well like i'm sort of reading about all these deaths of despair people seem very disconnected so it would be better if people were a little bit more connected and it's like it's like it's like a pinch of nationalism from the cupboard like a, a part of that right um that's that's something that I, I don't know. You could like you could put it like two different ways. You could sort of say like, look, nationalism is 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 generally sort of often problematic, and so we should be be, be very careful about sort of calling for the introduction of nationalism. Or you could sort of like translate what Brooks is saying is saying something like, uh, well, we just need a little bit of whatever that kind of togetherness stuff is, and he he calls it it, it nationalism. Um, and then you know that seems like an interesting argument. I think it's hard to measure uh, what sort of qualifies that sort of mystical togetherness. Uh, oftentimes when you sort of see commentators talking about it, um, it does have this kind of like, I know it when I see it kind of nature to it. Uh, and so I'm not saying that it's, um, you know, like some sort of mistake uh, to talk about it, but it's very hard, I think, to get your hands around what is actually meant either in the sort of the kind of like the David Brooks, like we need more togetherness kind of approach or, you know, again, what exactly the nationalists are talking about other than that, it would provide this sort of sense of connection and meaning. I think that brings us to this, this other critique of liberalism that you see from the post liberals, which is this, like this shared, the problem with liberalism is there's no shared view of the good is the argument that the, the neutrality says everyone pursues their own view of the good and but that that can be that's that's bad in a couple of senses one that there is something there is something worthwhile in their view about a shared view of the good that makes it better than individual conceptions of of the good and the good life um but the other one is that simply if people are free to pursue their own views of the good they they're not going to pursue my view of the good, my view will be underrepresented for based on my my preferences, um, and and this is this parallels an argument that conservatives often make about virtue, which is that what liberals or libertarians are are willing they place so much value on freedom that they downplay the importance of virtue, and what the conservatives are saying is. Virtue really matters, and if we have to trade off freedom in order to get more virtue, we're willing to do that. And then a Frank Meyer fusionist uh, um, makes the argument that actually, like the way that you cultivate virtue is through living free; it can't be forced upon you. But that also that that free that libertarianism needs to be tempered with a conservative perspective, so that you know what the virtues are. Um, and that argument or the argument about the good has always struck me as kind of misplaced because it assumes that essentially the liberal says, yeah, I don't have a conception of the good 
or says, yeah, I don't, I don't value virtue as much as you do. Um, and I think these other things are important, but I don't know that that's actually the case. And this is how like I would push back on the, the post liberals is I think that instead what the liberal says is there, I do have a concept of the good. I do have a concept of virtue. It's simply different from yours. Um, so for, for a liberal, like the good, as far as broader political life just is the good life is a life where you are free to pursue your own self-authorship and celebrate the self-authorship of others. And living in a society that enables that is the good. Um, and and then on the virtue side, it's not that liberals say, oh, I think freedom is so important that I don't care about social connections or family or or virtue or faith. It's that they're saying, no, I have different ways of I have a family and I value family heavily. It just doesn't look like the kind of family that you think a family ought to look like. I am virtuous, but I think that toleration and celebration of diversity um, and autonomy are virtues. And they're virtues that you and your trading off of freedom don't seem to care about for whatever reason. Um, is that is that at least one way to answer some of this, the the post-liberal critique is to say, like, I guess you're damn right we have a conception of the good. And, and that it places sort of uh, a sort of allowance of, of of people to choose kind of at the center and, and an allowance of these different sort of forms, different institutions that sort of embody right. those visions uh, to emerge, right? So you've got, you know, even in the early America, you know, many different sort of Christian denominations, and then later you get, you know, uh, you know, religions from from other traditions also coming to the U.S. and sort of like living side by side. Um, I think, uh, I think, I think that is uh, a case that liberals can make that they say, like, look, I self-identify as a liberal, and my vision of the good involves this this heavy portion of of pluralism. I, I would sort of say I would wonder if there's like many paths to being a liberal. So I think you could maybe say that like liberalism as like a sort of aspect of someone's identity. Like I identify as a liberal. I support, you know, uh, and, and by this, of course, I mean in kind of like the 19th century sort of freedom promoting sense, you know, uh, as opposed to the sort of the monarchist, you know, sense of, of the sort of liberal dichotomy. Right. So, you know, I support, um, you know, uh, freedom and tolerance and pluralism and 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 uh, I self-identify that and and identify very strongly uh, with those values. I think there may be ways that people could sort of maybe operationally be liberals, um, even if maybe they don't have an identity of liberals. And I think this was like a little bit of like what I was getting at my piece, where there may even be a case where someone might be operationally liberal but actually hold illiberal views, and you, you sort of get there by saying that. Uh, you know, I would like have it in my ideal world that society could be structured according to my vision. I realize that is not obtainable. I realize I'm in a world where people do have a variety of different strong competing visions of what that should be. I think the sort of the pathway to uh, my vision would be one of uh, conflict. 
that would sort of destroy the possibility for me and everybody else to sort of enjoy our visions of the good. And so I am going to sort of rest content with the situation as sort of a second best. So there, I think you could actually get someone who's kind of operationally quite liberal in the sense of pragmatically accepting tolerance. Um, but they might not actually have, you know, sort of like a deep sort of a commitment to the good of tolerance in its, uh, of itself. And I guess we could have a question is, is like, you know, should liberals be worried if people are sort of like grudgingly operationally liberals in that sense? Is that something we should be worried about? Um, but I do think that exists. And that is one of the striking things about a lot of the list, like the, the national conservatism conference and the, um, that I think it's happened twice now. I don't know. I'm trying to remember if it got disrupted by COVID one of the years. But were they these these post liberals, conservative post liberals, gotten together and give their talks about how you know what's gone wrong with America and so on, um, and that this this conflict that you're you're talking about of these multiple competing conceptions of the good, like you're absolutely right that it seems like the correct response to that is to say is like the mutual disarmament of liberalism of, you know, like, yes, I can't, liberalism says I can't enforce my conception of the good, but at least I can live it. Whereas if, if we're going to enforce one, it might not be mine. And, and one of the odd things is how much the national conservatives and the integralists and so on don't seem aware of how unpopular their views are and how unlikely they are. So like Victor Orban is this rising star in the American right in this very weird way. Like he's coming, I think, to CPAC. To I think speak. CPAC is and coming to him. CPAC came to him, but there's some – I just saw there's some major conference that oh, okay. he's coming to okay. speak at, and I can't remember which one it is. At least the architecture will be good. Yes. At least, uh, but the idea that if we got rid of liberalism, Americans would embrace Catholic theocracy – is deeply weird because not that many Americans are Catholics. Like it's just, and they're they're not going to choose that, um, and so you're going to lose out. It's going to much likely like if we it, if it was going to be one, it would be like some form of Protestantism would be the American creed, and then these conferences have. Your Catholic integralists, your Josh Hollies who are evangelical Protestants, your Hazonis who are Jewish, like all saying we should get rid of liberalism. It's just bizarre to me. Like it doesn't they, seem they like a seem, practical program. Like it, it's like it does not seem like a practical program in the slightest. Like if this is France and you know seventeen ninety five, and you're hiding somewhere with some pretender to the throne, you're like maybe we can get the monarchy back. You're like seems like a long shot. But you know, conceptually possible. Whereas you're saying, like, in, in, in like, in, in like this context, it almost feels like a little bit of like saying, like, we're going to get unicorns or something, right? It just seems very strange. Is that a fair way of? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's and and there's what I wonder is how much of it is part of uh, maybe an unstated like false consciousness argument. Which false consciousness arguments are really common. People make them all the time. You know, like libertarians do this where the reason that most Americans aren't on board with smashing the state is because public education has brainwashed them or they're only getting their news from the liberal media and so on and so forth. And if we could just if we could just get like more Randian professors and get rid of the public schools, everyone would become an anarcho-capitalist. 
is, is kind of the overstated yeah. version, but that's like a false consciousness argument, right? Like people have been tricked. Um, and I think that with conservatism, with this kind of conservatism, there's also a strong false consciousness argument, which is that if people weren't having liberal cultural values constantly pushed and propagandized to them by Hollywood and public schools and so on, they would come to see the value of, they would recognize that their unhappiness is the result of turning away from traditions and conservative virtues and whatever, you know, the litany of their particular conception of the good. And so then they would suddenly all embrace this thing. Like my, the the reason, so it's at, at like a very simple level. It is the reason that people just, that not many people disagree with me is because they've all been tricked versus they simply have other arguments or I haven't been terribly persuasive. Yeah. I, I, I don't think they're necessarily, I think, I think, some of their views I find unusual and strange. Uh, I don't know if I would say that they are always impractical if your time frame is long enough, right? So you could, if you take their perspective, maybe they say some, maybe they tell a story something like this. Maybe it's something like, look, um, America used to sort of have a particular sort of social structure, um, say in the 1950s, or pick your golden age, right? Whatever that might be. Uh, and and maybe America was like more conservative around sexual issues, maybe more conservative um, in other areas. Maybe you sort of pull out some statistics that say more people went to church, and you say like, okay, that's within living memory, right? That a lot of that has changed. So if you set your time frame at like forty years, right, um, and you're just like really focused, uh, maybe there's a bit of a false consciousness argument in there as well. Maybe there is something like where they do say that that people are tricked, or maybe they're just going to say like we're going to convince the new people, we're going to convince the, the younger generations, and that's why you have the memes out there, right? You know, uh, trying to sort of rally a you know a, a a sort of energetic you know sort of cohort to kind of go out and and kind of uh, proselytize uh, for this sort of vision. And maybe their thought is like, look, um, given enough time and kind of sort of the ideological equivalent of compound interest, right, uh, maybe that pays dividends in, in 40 years. And and do they have that kind of like longer uh, time horizon? Uh, that might not be crazy. That might not be impractical, I think, uh, uh, from that perspective. I think there is, I think, the question you sort of you, you put, put put out there is are there particular parameters within which you know, sort of like American history, American culture can sort of transform itself. And I think it would be hard to sort of like completely bend back kind of that sort of liberal individualism. I think that that still is a factor um, on the right. I think it sort of reveals itself differently uh, on the left. Uh, but I think it's, it's that does seem to be something that's pretty uh, baked in at this point into American culture. So I think it would be hard to um you know have have a catholic monarchy or something that would that would really sort of roll back uh that that would be very difficult i think well and i would also say even on that that historical like the the 40 year time horizon thing a lot of the the view that well back in the 1950s everyone was on board with this project it depends upon ignoring a lot sure. of people absolutely that absolutely. That, that the 50s there were just a lot of voices that were not free to express themselves because of social pressures or or even legal pressures um and so a lot of 
a lot of what looks like radically increasing diversity of viewpoints that we see today is instead viewpoints that existed but were not free to express themselves now being free to express themselves. And so that I think makes the the project of turning back the clock even more difficult because right. it's less about persuading people back to beliefs but instead saying all of you who held these diverse views need to just kind of shut up again. Right. I think that that media environment has changed a lot. And I think it's it's actually – it's I think it would be quite challenging because on the one hand, the present kind of you know more fractured media environment makes it a lot easier for people to kind of sort of adopt – or try to convince a few people of of kind of unusual, you know, uh, political beliefs that maybe we really need uh, the restoration of the Stuart monarchy or something. You probably don't have many takers for that in a pre-inner age. But if I could try to like go and try to find, you know, um, you know, Americans who believe that on the internet, I probably could, right? Uh, so like, I think the internet probably offers them a lot of like advantages in, in trying to win people over. But I think, like you said. Uh, because of the way the communication technology is like, like more, not just morally, is it sort of unjust to put, you know, ask people to not sort of, uh, you know, speak their views on things. Uh, but uh, just practically, like, I, I don't see how that could uh, occur without, you know, like a very significant sort of censorship regime, which, you know, those have happened in the world, and they've been terrible and awful, and they still happen today. So hopefully that is not in our future. But um, absent that, I think it would be very hard to but it occurs to me as you're saying that, that that very technology that has enabled, yes, like you to if, – if you're that one weird monarchist in your small town, prior, prior to the internet, you're going to remain that one weird monarchist. But Reddit lets you find the slash weird monarchist subreddit and then you've got, you've got your community. Um, but that same thing almost seems like a – it, it enables a, a particular answer or a particular solution to their concerns, which is that you can also create your own bubbles through this. So in the time of pri prior to the internet and prior to cable TV, when we had just the big three networks, it was – there was this kind of – I mean it wasn't a monoculture, right? But the the main – like if you wanted media, it came from a fewer sources and you got – the broader perspective. But right now you can hyper custom tailor your media consumption habits and you can find outlets that come from the very narrow perspectives that you might like. And so you can almost build what we might call like a polycentric cultural order or something, you know, where where the solution is liberalism politically, but then you can wall yourself off in this virtual world um and and so like freedom of association becomes much easier and more robust in this world you just have to be willing and i think this is where a lot of the post liberals would ultimately like disagree with what i'm arguing is that you have to be willing to say you have to be willing to be happy with it being your weird little bubble and there being other weird little bubbles that might occasionally intrude Certain projects are like clearly taken off the table. So, like in the in the present world, if you want to hang out and talk about how awesome monarchy is with a bunch of other monarchists, you can do that. If you want an actually existing monarchy in America, that's kind of hard. You're, 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 that's not going to work. Uh, this is where I think with and I sort of spoke a little bit 
in the in the article uh, kind of about uh, Dreher, who is someone I've read off and on, and and he seems to go through slightly different phases. And I think you know he would probably admit that he sort of changes his mind, which I think is actually quite a virtue of of Dreher, Even though I sort of often disagree with a lot of his views, he he does seem to really sort of grapple. Uh, with a lot of th- new things, and 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 does seem to change his mind on occasion, but uh, he had a previous position, sort of represented by his book, uh, the Benedict Option, where uh, essentially my understanding is that his answer to this challenge was exactly something of what you propose: is that sort of uh, religious con- conservatives could actually build uh, thick uh, communities oriented around a shared vision of the good. Uh, but that these would be at a level below the nation state, right? Now, again, there's this kind of like larger critique of society. And so you sort of need these in his view as kind of like life rafts or, or monasteries and, and, a, and a sea of, you know, sort of cultural flux. Um, but that is perfectly consistent, you know, I think with like a liberal sort of uh, frame. Uh, but he has since, I think, shifted um, and is, is gravitated much towards, towards uh folks like Orban. And so I, I and I, I don't know fully why he made that shift, uh, unless it's there's just some deep pessimism about the sort of sustainability of, of those sorts of uh, intentional communities. But it does seem like to, to rephrase what you just said, the answer, if, if they can get over their hangups about other people doing different things and not being able to institute their preferred views at the political level, um, the answer is a Nozickian utopia of utopias. It is you are free to associate and have whatever kind of community you want as long as people have a right of exit if they decide it's not for them. Um, and then let the views compete in this this marketplace of ideas. And if – I mean people people are – people want to lead good lives. They want to pursue the good. They want to find meaning, and so if your particular conception of that is is appealing or is good at providing those things, it doesn't need the state to enforce it. People will people will gravitate towards it, and people will embrace it, and and that's great. Like those, you know, the, I I don't want the the particular like Dreher version of the traditional lifestyles, but I think it's, it's awesome if certain people do and are happy in that. I wonder if the conservatives might, uh, or the sort of, I should say more strictly some of these post liberals might wonder about that. Cause I think what you expressed there is a very sort of like market sort of thinking and sort of like in the million sense, like, you know, uh, you know, experiments and living and that people will sort of, um, if 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 someone is a is a post liberal and has like a sort of a deep kind of sense of like human nature as uh, somehow broken or somehow fallen or you know they might actually have like a lot of pessimism about the ability of people to make choices that make them happy. Um, I, I I don't think that's true. I, I am a, more on the optimist about human nature but if you had such a pessimism about people's ability to make choices that make them happy which doesn't seem like they're, they're i could imagine people having experience that makes that belief seem true right um uh then maybe that kind of market equilibrium approach you you, you spoke of aaron might not be uh persuasive to them 
right? Because they might say, like, look, people make bad choices all the time, you know, um, and we've got stories about it, like Adam and Eve, and like, however you interpret that, you know, literally, they'd say, like, but the the, the story, the message, the the lesson is there that people make poor choices. Um, uh, that I, I, that I think shows like another potentially. Like, I think with, like, a lot of these political debates, and I think this kind of came up in our conversation, as I do think a lot of the divides often sort of uncover sort of, like, almost, like, deeper disagreements about sort of human nature or, like, the structure of society that, um, like, people sometimes talk about, but, like, not always. But, like, you, you can always seem to kind of go, like, another level down and find a, another fundamental disagreement. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. Here's a preview of the next episode, where I talk with journalist Radley Belko about criminal justice and why those demanding law and order keep mistaking violence and oppression for the rule of law. The classic sort of uh, example that I always see thrown at libertarians and conservatives when they complain about, you know, destruction of property uh, as a matter of, as a means of protest is, you know, the Boston Tea Party, which of course we celebrate. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, on the right and, and increasingly in libertarian circles and particularly among the current incarnation of libertarian party, there is just this absolute kind of revulsion at letting black people express their frustration about racism. And, you know, I mean, it's always kind of baffled me. And I, I guess I used to be part of this camp a little bit, the camp that kind of denied racism or, or thought or argued that racism wasn't a big deal. And then, of course, I started writing about these issues. And you see, you know, the, the issue of structural racism, which I think is widely misunderstood. Like structural racism means everybody within a given system is racist. Uh, you know, you're accusing everyone of that. And of course, it's, it's almost the opposite of that. It's that the intent of individuals in that system doesn't matter. You know, the system itself was constructed in an era when racism was sort of woven into the fabric of everyday life. And the idea that all of a sudden we can collectively decide that racism and, and Jim Crow are a bad thing, but still have these institutions that were developed and honed and evolved uh, during, you know, the 100 or so years when Jim Crow was kind of dominant, you know, in, in huge parts of the country. Like, I think it's just really naive. If you'd like to listen to my conversation with Radley two weeks early, as well as get access to our Discord community, where you can discuss episodes with me and fellow listeners and participate in our fun new book club, just click the link in the show notes to learn more or head to reimagininglibertycom slash subscribe.